All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, the view from the top. Former Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Jonathan Greenard will be here to share his views on Russia's war on Ukraine, the situation in the Pacific, and the rise of the Chinese Navy. And as a former submariner, his thoughts on the recent loss of the submersible Titan. But first, a look at this week's naval news. The three-ship 43rd Escort Group of the Chinese Navy arrived at Tema Port in Accra, Ghana on June 27th for a four-day visit, just after a similar visit to Côte d'Ivoire. The group deployed from China in early January and patrolled the Gulf of Aden, where it was relieved earlier in June by the 44th Escort Group before heading to West Africa. Carrier Air Wing 17, the cruiser Bunker Hill, and destroyer Decatur returned to their home port of San Diego and air bases on the West Coast on June 27th and 28th, wrapping up a seven-month Western Pacific deployment aboard the carrier Nimitz. Nimitz herself also put into San Diego ahead of returning to her home port of Bremerton, Washington. Meanwhile, in the Western Pacific, the carrier Ronald Reagan is again underway after a four-day visit to Da Nang, Vietnam. The Japan-based ship is about a month in to her summer deployment in the Indo-Pacific region. In the Atlantic, three carriers were underway at the same time off the U.S. East Coast. The Dwight D. Eisenhower Carrier Strike Group is carrying out her major pre-deployment composite unit exercise. George H.W. Bush is underway providing aviator carrier qualifications, and the George Washington is underway carrying out a myriad of certifications following the conclusion of her long-running reactor refueling overhaul. And in the Mediterranean theater, the deployed Gerald R. Ford arrived at Split Croatia on June 26th for a port call. At San Diego, an electrical fire in an emergency generator compartment aboard the carrier Abraham Lincoln, June 28th, was extinguished by the ship's in-port emergency team while the carrier was undergoing a pierside availability at Naval Air Station North Island. The fire was put out after about 10 minutes. There were no injuries, and the Navy has not announced the extent of the damage. As has been widely reported, pieces of the imploded submersible Titan have been recovered from the ocean floor near the wreck of the Titanic. The U.S. Coast Guard reported that the vessel Horizon Arctic arrived in St. John's, Newfoundland on June 28th, bearing the debris, which will be analyzed and tested by the Titan Submersible Marine Board of Investigation. The board was convened on June 23rd, five days after the Titan was first reported missing and later determined to have imploded. In new ship news, the Flight 3 Arleigh Burke-class destroyer Jack H. Lucas, DDG-125, was delivered to the Navy June 27th from English Shipbuilding in Pascagoula, Mississippi. The Jack H. Lucas is the first ship delivered with the SPY-6 Air and Missile Defense Radar, or AMDR, paired with the Aegis Combat System. The ship is scheduled to be commissioned October 7th at the port of Tampa Bay, Florida, before heading to her new home port of San Diego. 
English Shipbuilding also announced June 30th the successful completion of Builder's Sea Trials for the National Security Cutter Calhoun, WMSL 759, the 10th of 11 cutters that are the U.S. Coast Guard's biggest patrol ships. Only one more, Friedman, WMSL 760, is being built as the production line humming along since 2004 faces its conclusion. For the fourth time, a U.S. Navy warship will bear the name of Marquis de Lafayette. Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro announced June 29th in Paris that the fourth Constellation class frigate will become USS Lafayette FFG-65. Previous ships bearing the name were a Civil War ironclad, the ill-fated French liner Normandy in World War II, and the Cold War Polaris submarine SSBN-616. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right. We are fortunate to have with us today Admiral Jonathan Greenert, Chief of Naval Operations from 2011 to 2015. He's a submariner, having served aboard fast attack boats, ballistic missile submarines, and the unique NR-1. Among other postings, he commanded the U.S. 7th Fleet in Japan, commanded U.S. Fleet Forces Command, and served as the Vice Chief of Naval Operations before becoming CNO. Welcome to the podcast, Admiral Greenert. Thank you, Chris. It's been too long. It's good to get back together with you. Very good, sir. Thank you. So let's start with, the, with Russia and the war in Europe. Uh, recently, you spoke at a conference I attended on the Black Sea, but that was before the events over the weekend of June 23rd with the demonstrations by the Wagner Group. And we're all waiting to see how that, sh- that situation shakes out. So far, though, about a year and a half into this war, what lessons have you derived from the way the war in Ukraine has progressed? Oh, so many. Um, so I'll just, so I'll rattle them off the things. Uh, logistics, you know, the old saying of, uh, of the people uh, who are amateurs, they do tactics and professionals do logistics. So let's face it, <clears throat> the ability uh, of the Ukrainian army to maintain their logistics trail and the inability of Russia to do the same for their army uh, is cleared away a problem. Uh, two, delegation of and clarity of command and control, the ability of the Ukrainian army to change uh, as things get cut off, they're, you know, they're, they're not centralized. <clears throat> that worked very well for them. And it worked in the opposite way for Russia. That's a lesson because we're so used to being centralized in the Western and especially in the US uh, in our command and control. And so we are in a way relearning that. Uh, three, intelligence, man, the ability to get the information intelligence as quickly as possible there so that you can turn it and take information to, or let's just say data, to information, to intelligence, to technical significance, and the old OODA loop to move that around clearly and far and away uh, important. And then finally, uh, we could go on <laughs> with this. Finally, you know, uh, allies. That's been our strength for forever. Uh, and as we think of potential adversaries, potential conflicts with either China or Russia or Iran, North Korea, uh, our alliances are, are a tremendous strength and bringing to bear that alliance uh, to support Ukraine is incredibly important. It works on the will of the nation to work. It eventually works on the people. It works on diplomacy. It works on the economic factor of security in a conflict, uh, and it worked clearly in Ukraine's favor. So, what? So, 
the Russian Navy itself, um, obviously this is, this is primarily a land campaign, clearly. Yeah. But uh, especially in the opening days, people expected uh, a series of amphibious assaults. Uh, certainly to take all the Ukrainian ports. They've never taken Odessa, Ukraine's largest port. Yeah. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of mines in the, a lot of mines out there. The port is certainly limited in its capabilities right now. Mines laid by Russians, mines laid by uh, Ukraine. Uh, but the sort of failure of, of the Russian Navy to even mount any kind of amphibious assault. Did you do draw any lessons from that? It's hard. Any amphibious assault is incredibly difficult. I'm not a Marine, but I did work closely with my Marine counterparts when I was out at the 7th Fleet in Japan. One of the things, uh, our job, that is our collective job, was if called upon, was to do an amphibious assault uh, in case of a Korean campaign. So we would, we would exercise on that over and over and over. And Chris, the complexity of doing that is mind boggling from weather, topography, you mentioned it, mines, uh, to uh, the surf change. Uh, uh, and then if it's resisted, uh, that's a whole nother thing. You gotta maintain some sort of sea base and that's constantly being threatened. Uh, so you can't sit still or you're just a target. That was a, a big problem with Russia. They, they could never establish a sea base because of the mines, because of the, uh, the missile threat that they had, uh, unmanned surface vehicles, that is, uh, if you will, uh, maritime IEDs uh, that were threatening them. So th this is a really complicated thing. There's a lesson here for China. Uh, you know, you can come in and try it and finish the assault. You could be overwhelming. And you could be, you could have completed the assault. You have a beachhead. Okay, great. Can you hold it? That's a whole another dimension. And again, it's it's a, a very very difficult problem. So I'll just leave it at that. So I guess I'm not surprised that the Russians were not able to do it. It should have been easy. It would have been what we call an admin, an admin uh, transfer. That is, you pull into a pier and you offload. But if you can't get access to that pier, can't hold it. It's not going to happen. I mean, so yeah, you talk about the China, Chinese. I kind of want to get more into this in a little while, but why not now? So, so the big fear these days is China's invasion of Taiwan. The Taiwan yeah. Strait is about 100 miles wide. Um, they the Chinese have immense assets. Certainly, they they built up their merchant fleet to 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 really carry out this this assault. Should it happen, they've built very modern uh, amphibious ships, LPDs, big deck amphibs, three of them so far. Um, like you said, it's it's uh, mounting the assault is one thing, but sustaining the fight across such a barrier, a hundred miles is pretty good. I mean, that's that's pretty challenging. You got to admit, much much more than what Russia is facing in the Black Sea. Yes, yes, um, yeah. So you know, I, to expand a little bit upon that, uh, I believe that certainly uh, China, with with the force they're building, the force that they will have, we can go two years into the future, could establish a beachhead. The, the issue get into there, <clears throat> first of all, there is no really good conducive beachhead per se on the west coast of Taiwan. And those that are there are the only ones that are known. So there's every great likelihood they're gonna be mined, there's gonna be missiles on the hills out and around it. 
once you establish the beachhead, you got about 72 hours. That's the most you can expect your forces that are, that landed will have to sustain themselves. That's kind of the thumb rule. And then you have to provide a backup and a secondary. That, that's got to come from a bunch of ships that are offshore there in the sea base. And if that sea base is unopposed, that's great. If that sea base is opposed, you have to build some sort of ring of protection around it. I don't mean that literally. Early, but you get my point. Something has to protect all that. So you probably got to own the undersea, you probably got to own the sky, and you probably got to own the surface. Then you're going to have to have that command and control structure. So you get all this coordinated. So you better be able to communicate clearly and not have, uh, a, a, you know, your, your communications interrupted, corrupted, whatever the term may be. It's very hard to do that. Uh, then there's the old uh, counterinsurgency, which we have a lot of scar tissue on in, in Iraq when, you know, mission was accomplished at first. But then if they suddenly say, no, we don't want you here, uh, it gets hard. Can China do it? I would say, of course, they can do it. Are they willing to pay the cost? And that kind of becomes the, you know, the question, the big question. And will Xi Jinping be willing to a, pay the cost? And if this is very, very costly it probably cost him his legacy. So they better do it and they better, they better do it right the first time, you know, or it will be quite a failure on him. Sir, it's uh, Chris Cervello. Uh, th thanks for joining us. Um, I, I wanted to pull on that thread. There's a lot that's discussed in the press about what it would take to fight and win in a conflict with China. You spent a lot of your time um, prior to being CNO and as CNO thinking about how to prevent conflict for, with China by being ready, um, by engaging the Chinese, but also by building partner capacity. W what's your view eight years later in, in how we could prevent a conflict or push it further and further into the future? Yeah. Uh, hi, Chris. Good to see you again. In, in order to deter, I guess that's what really we're talking about, put this off. Number one, I would continue to sow doubt because what's key for Xi Jinping, as I, as I was talking to uh, Chris Cobbs just a minute ago, is he's got to get this right. He kind of has one shot at this. Uh, so the risk factor in his eyes has to be low. And, and China, by virtue of how they do uh, their planning, how they do concepts, it has to work a certain way. In other words, they don't do things well on the fly. They never really have. Okay, so continue to sow doubt. Bring in the allies. They don't like that. It, it worries them because they don't really know how much Australia, South Korea, uh, Japan, and, and of course now NATO is a thought they have to keep in mind, will portray that. If it gets to be an extended fight and we have the alliances there, that's a problem for them. So they have to continue to worry about that. Uh, number two, uh, don't be predictable. So we've heard about this dynamic employment, how we're going to you know, deploy and employ our forces and all that. That's an important part of that and continue to sow that. And then get, get, keep doing those demos, those multi-carrier operations, Valiant Shield um, and, and, the, and the operations up there, uh, the uh, Ultifocus Lens, Ultifocus Guardian, and all of those exercises we do with Korea. Uh, these sorts of things uh, portray and demonstrate a will uh, to, to employ our forces and to bring together the uh, allies. And, and it worries them a, a great bit. And I take a lot of that from Chinese counterpart, Wu Sheng Li. 
and he openly said, you know, that's a bother to us. It agitated him, which was good news. Uh, but, you know, he was pretty clear that it was a bother to China. To China. You spent a significant amount of time um, you know, in comparison to your predecessors and those that have followed you, you know, with the Chinese Navy. Do you think we are at a disadvantage in not engaging with them? Um, I mean, I mean, should we be doing more? And I don't necessarily mean, you, you know, at, at the RIMPAC level or or exercises, but I mean, you, you know, you met, I think it was like once a month or once a quarter, you did a VTC with Wu Sheng Li and um, the, the couple that I was fortunate enough to, to sit in on or, or read the readouts on, it, it you, you know, you learned a lot about them. If you're Admiral Gilday or, or who will follow him, are you at a disadvantage by not having that? Yeah, I do believe that. Uh, and it's more than Gilday, of course. It, it's Aquilino, you know, it's Paparo, uh, our fleet commanders, uh, our Pacific commanders, excuse me. Yes, and I think number one is professional military people. And Wu Sheng Li was completely on board with this. We should not have a miscalculation cause uh, inadvertent conflict because they didn't want conflict unless they wanted it. And then that would start at the top uh, to, to lay at the feet of our bosses and our diplomats this problem where, oh, guess what? We, you know, we have a dust up going on here. And if there's not a clear off-ramp, for lack of a better term, will, where will this end up? Now, you know, you could run back in history and say, well, and this is how this war started and that war started. I don't really mean it like that, but it just can be avoided if, to, if the professional mariners, professional military people are allowed to communicate in a way uh, that makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not naive enough to think that that makes our civilian bosses a little bit anxious and they, they say this, but nonetheless, uh, it's just proven through the years. And lastly, I'd say we did this during the Cold War with Russia. The Ink Sea, you know, you're familiar with that, Chris, both uh, you and Chris Kavis. And that was a very useful tool to help keep us from getting into a, a dust up uh, inadvertently. Yeah, I couldn't help but think of Q's, uh, the code for yeah. unplanned encounters at sea that, that you were instrumental in, in getting signed. I couldn't help but think about that when. Um, there was video put out of the Chung Hoon um, here the, a couple of weeks ago, um, you, you know, and the Chinese uh, ship was cutting in front of it. I mean, that's kind of exactly what I remember you talking about, uh, you, you know, when, when you were CNO. I, I did want to ask one more question and I'll throw it back over to Chris Cavis. During your time as VCNO and CNO, you and the team were really good at kind of finding anything that was in the inventory and putting something new on it, whether it was a laser, whether it was taking an LSD and looking at it in a different way as a, as a forward staging base, what's missing in the Pacific? And I don't necessarily just mean from a US standpoint, but what, what technology would kind of keep the Chinese on their heels or help shake up the situation from a, um, an allies and partners standpoint? Yeah, I think uh, advances in the electromagnetic spectrum, EW warfare. Uh, we should advance as quickly as possible, uh, install the pods on our aircraft, uh, install the modules and our surface ships out there. Uh, and, and I'm talking about all of them, even the amphibious ships. We have to, our best defense uh, from cruise missiles, from ballistic missiles, uh, from a whole host of items from being targeted uh, is electromagnetic warfare. I mean, so I would move as quickly as feasible there. Uh, we 
I'd like to say we have enough bullets. What I mean by is we have enough capability in my view in comparison to what we don't have through electromagnetic warfare. We need to up the game in that. And that, that goes all the way back to how are you gonna defend Guam, Japan, Okinawa? Uh, we will not be able to shoot them all down with them or jam them. So with the Chinese, you know, people, people look at their ships, for example, in an awful lot of the uh, discussion that you see in, on, I mean, online, in the proceedings, Naval Institute Magazine, is about their ships. Um, and, and, and certainly the Chinese, have, they seem to have used us as a model. They've built essentially U.S. Navy in many ways, a balanced fleet, uh, big support ships. Uh, the, the Gulf of Aden deployments, which have been going on for well over a decade now, have really given them sustained blue water out of area operations experience that they're, that they're expanding in. As a matter of fact, I think today the, the uh, 43rd Escort Force is in West Africa, while the 44th has just relieved them in the Gulf of Aden. So they, they are branching out more and more all the time. Um, but what are people missing when they're, when they're looking at the Chinese Navy and talking about it? I mean, you know, I mean, you're looking at the full spectrum of threat here, obviously, electronic warfare. People don't see that. You can't take pictures of that. Logistics, they're getting an awful lot better at, but they're still trailing. They're not, they're not really where we are. And they're not even where we are in World, in World War II if you look at their ability to do underway replenishment. Um, but what, what do you think, what are people missing when they look at the Chinese Navy? Well, I think they have uh, disparate, sometimes disparate capability. What I don't know and what we're not sure of, and I believe they're not there yet is, and they might even admit it, they're not necessarily proficient at group-wide and fleet-wide operations. They are fairly nascent, nascent in, in going from centralized command from a headquarters. Think of us at you know, the second fleet or the third fleet, because uh, again, not, they don't often operate long away from the coast in large elements. They, they have discrete examples of it, but, and they may send a group as you've given an example, Chris, but not in a really large amount. It'd be like us from our headquarters at the second fleet or the third fleet, telling folks what to do, as opposed to having them go out with a command ship-like approach uh, and do command and control fleet-wide operations. That'd be one. Two, I don't know if they can take a hit very well. I toured a number of ships, and I don't profess to be an expert on you know, Chinese damage control and what they can do. But if I were to give you an anecdote, I walked around the ships, uh, the ship with, uh, it was a Luyang. It was a, new, a newer Luyang with uh, Wu Sheng Li and then, and then another frigate. And he was proudly showing me around. I, I saw a damage control station. It reminded me one on the Carnival Cruise Line. My wife and I went on. I mean, it had a hose, it had extinguishers and it had that. But we, ours are very complex, as we all know, because we plan to continue to fight. And I said to him, this is not a lot of damage control. And he effectively said, uh, we're offensively minded. We will, we will kind of retire if we get hit. They don't have, or they didn't have, uh, sound-powered phones. We use you know, sound-powered phones in case you lose all power. Uh, that you, you do communications to the sound of your vo you know, the voice, and, and your voice into that causes it to, to go through a simple wire. Uh, and I said, why don't you use sound-powered technology? He said, we have several 
uninterrupted backups. And I, I had to smile and said, well, so do we. But of course, as we know, when the when you have massive, you know, big flooding, a big fire, which they hadn't had on any of their ships at that time, you lose all that. So I don't know how well they can take a fight. Uh, I'm sorry, take a hit. And then lastly, their major ships are very vulnerable. Their carriers are very vulnerable. Yeah, they did copy us. And as we lament about how vulnerable our carriers are and our major ships, they've created the exact same thing. And, and I talk predict, uh, predominantly and specifically from the undersea. Um, they are vulnerable. And, and I'm a little surprised they did it that way, but they did. Uh, they, they can't do air wing, complex air wing operations now, but they're working very hard on it. They'll get there sooner or later but not in large numbers of sorties. We, we talk 80 to 90 sorties for a, a large air wing operations. They talk 40 to 50. Right, so, you know, so submarines, that was, that, that's how you came up in the Navy. You certainly know submarine warfare, undersea warfare. The Chinese undersea threat has not been as intimidating as you might think because their submarines are fairly noisy. They're fairly, fairly, or maybe not as quite as, as sophisticated as the NATO navies as, as U.S. submarines. Even the best Soviet or Soviet, I said Soviet, Russian submarines. Um, but they're getting better. They're getting better faster. And of course, they can they can build things fast. The Russians are building a very good attack submarine now, Severa Morris, but they can't they can't produce very many very fast at all. Um, that's a that's a big threat. I mean, what's your what's your assessment of the growth of the Chinese undersea fleet? Yeah, you know, I think uh, if for folks that saw the sixty minutes piece on the Navy, that uh, one statement he made the same question, he said, "I would assess the Chinese undersea fleet, the, the submarine fleet, to be a generation behind us." And and his point was, we need to keep that. Think of a generation of just under ten years, and that's about right, Chris. Uh, if we have that lead and we have a lot of endeavors going on to sustain that, a lot of that is <clears throat> quieting and being able to take a signal in the water or uh, a noise in the water and quickly break that down and determine if that is a valid signal for, you know, an, an enemy uh, and to be or another, another submarine to be able to do that and to do that better and you know, lower and lower decibels is takes tremendous processing power and, and capability within uh, your crew and, and your systems. Uh, that's what they have to work on. That's what we have to stay ahead on, if I were to say anything. That. And then lastly, weapons. Uh, it's kind of in the undersea domain. Whoever shoots first is more than likely to win. Uh, if, somebody, if you shoot at me, I'm gonna try and run. I run, I make noise because I'm, I'm running. Uh, and that causes propellers to turn, cavitation to take place, et cetera. And so you'll probably shoot again. And so now I have to go through this process of outrunning, getting out of the way of your torpedoes and not being detected by the torpedoes, you know, um, uh, slow down, get quiet again and come back and search. Uh, that takes two, three hours. And so my point is uh, to be able to quickly ascertain what that is, is that an enemy? Is it valid? Shoot, shoot quickly, shoot many times uh, in order to win. I mean, that's sort of the simplistic approach that we are ahead in now and we need to maintain the lead on. 
So in the time we have left, let, let's move from, you know, nation state submarines to uh, experimental or, or private submarines. Uh, the, the news of the Titan at first, the fact that it was lost and then uh, the mishap that, that subsequently occurred, you know, kind of grabbed everyone's attention. I'm interested, Chris mentioned at the top that you were uh, part of the NR1 effort. Uh, interested in your take on um, the Titan uh, disaster. But then also, what does it mean for um, private endeavors and, you know, what I would call innovation theater, right? I mean, this like desire to go fast and, and do things maybe not as quickly. I mean, you, you certainly both saw that in uniform and now you're on a number of private boards. I would love to get your take on the whole environment. Yeah, I think um, first it's a tragedy. We all know that. And that, that's quite unfortunate. Uh, I think we need to take, there's a collective need to take a look at uh, what's for the better good of the public safety. And what I mean by that is uh, if you invent something, you're going to send it up in the air and it could come down and crash on my house or anybody's house and kill people. I want to know a lot about it. I'm going to regulate you going up in the air unless you can prove to me and, and then I'm regulating you by, <laughs> by doing that. Uh, so that's, that's things going up in the air, including outer space. Uh, if you're going to go out on the water, on the surface, you still have Coast Guard requirements. And if you get caught for things like uh, beacons, in case you take in on water, if you sink, there are saltwater activated beacons, etc. There are those. And we're quite familiar with things on the road, autonomous vehicles. It's, it's all regulated by the public, uh, what's good for the public, public safety. But the undersea domain, there's little threat to the public safety. So I guess lastly, my point would be, if we're going to take citizens down into this and portray it as um, not a risk of life, I can understand the unforgiving, exciting aspect of it because, hey, it's just us. We're not overly regulated. We're going to cutting edge stuff. That's fine. But uh, when things go wrong, there's a tremendous cost of all of the enterprise and infrastructure we sent out collectively, Canada, the United States, to go find them. Now, all of a sudden, it's a burden for the public interest. Uh, and so I think that there has to be a balance of that and, and some looking into it. Um, are you unduly risking people by offering to do that? Number one, publicly, I mean, if it's advertised. And then number two, okay, well, what if something goes wrong? Who's responsible for you and accountable uh, in this? And I would say you have to have that conversation and determine if what's in place is good enough. Or do we have to, I, to let me get to the point. I'm kind of shocked that, and maybe there was, I'm unaware of any kind of beacon that went off right away. Maybe it couldn't if the thing imploded. But in most other things, you know, even if it implodes, something releases. You, you get what I'm saying? And we say, uh oh, there's a, there's a sunken whatever. Every submarine that every nation has, has a buoy, which if the sub sinks, when it reaches a certain depth, releases and goes to the surface and said, there's a sunken submarine here. And that beacon has, it happened when the Argentinians sunk, it's happened when the Russians have had accidents, it's happened when the Chinese have had accidents, that we've known that that happened because they've complied with that. All right, well, sir. I really appreciate you being here. This has really been a good, good conversation. You know, I mean, it, there, there really is an awful lot of stuff going on in the naval world. Um, and it really, it, it helps us when you come back 
you know, having been at the top, having had had to deal with all these issues, um, when you when 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 you come back and uh, talk to us like this, it's it's really a bonus. So thank you for being here, folks. We've been talking to Admiral Jonathan Greenert, uh, former Chief of Naval Operations. Admiral, thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Uh, nice to see you, Chris and Chris. <laughs> now hear this. Now hear this. All right. And now, Mr. Cervello, with some thoughts on the legacy of former Chief of Naval Operations, Greenard. Chris, that was a great conversation with Admiral Greenard, particularly his insights on his Chinese counterpart and on what capabilities are needed to keep the Chinese on their heels. As CNO, Greenard and his team spearheaded new concepts for undersea electromagnetic maneuver and cyber warfare to build on longstanding strengths of the Navy while expanding the use of unmanned systems in all domains. Propelling these concepts forward, he deployed laser technology afloat for the first time, pushed the electromagnetic railgun for at-sea testing and transition, and watched the first carrier landing of an unmanned system. Sadly, many of these concepts have languished in the years since his departure. The Greener team looked at every legacy platform as an opportunity to add new technology, both to force the fleet to learn, but more importantly, to keep our competitors off balance. As we prepare for a new Marine Corps Commandant and a new Chief of Naval Operations, I strongly suggest that these new staffs look back to the Greener days and learn from his creativity. Let's find ways to deploy Marines on non-traditional platforms like the littoral combat ship, destroyers and carriers. Let's put new and different weapons on amphibious ships or deploy unique surface action groups and amphibious ready groups to explore new capabilities and give the Chinese fits. Despite the lamentations of many navalists, the Navy and Marine Corps will likely prepare for and fight the next conflict with the technology and force structure they have today. So let's learn from folks like Admiral Greenard and find new and unique ways to position today's capability to max out lethality and keep the bad guys in the dark. All right. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavishers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>